بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله This is lesson 92 in our study the radiant light covering the life of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wa wasallam, and we are aiming to complete our study of the seerah the week before Ramadan. So it's hard to cover all of the material. We can't really do it justice, but we, inshallah, will try our best. We are in. I think this is the third session covering. The Battle of Al-Ahzab, also called the Battle of Khandaq, the Battle of the Trench or the Battle of the Confederates. And last week we were speaking about how the Muslims in Medina spent the first 20 days as they were facing off against the 10,000 strong collection of Arab tribes from Quraysh, from Ghatafan, from other tribes and how it was 20 days and nights of what we may term siege warfare, what we call that hisar. So you have the Quraysh and the Confederates on the other side of the trench, and the Muslims are on the other side, and they're patrolling the trench lines and around the city day and night, and just in light skirmishes with the Quraysh as they're maneuvering, as Ghatafan is maneuvering, and so last week we talked about how Abu Sufyan had sent, secretly sent Huyay ibn Akhtab of Banu Nadir to go and speak with Banu Quraidah and ask them to break their treaty they had with the Prophet So the chief of Banu Nadir goes to meet the chief of Banu Quraidah, Ka'ab ibn Asad al-Quradi. And after a lengthy back and forth where... Ka'b ibn Asad was very reluctant to break the treaty. He eventually breaks the treaty and agrees to join the forces of the Ahzab. So this was confirmed by the Prophet ﷺ, and he sent some people to verify this information. They came back and verified that it's true. They have broken the treaty. They ripped the mithaq paper into shreds. They go back and tell the Prophet ﷺ and he says, Hasbunallahu wa ni'mal wakil. And he goes to sleep. He goes and he rests. And this means that you have the Ahzab to the north across the trench. And now you have, with Banu Quraidah breaking the treaty, you have a force from the south. So this is a huge trial for the Muslims. And many of the Muslims who witnessed these incidents said, that that was the worst night of our lives because they are surrounded, they're cold, they're hungry, they're tired, they've been patrolling every night in skirmishes. And now with Banu Quraidah breaking the treaty and potentially coming from the south, they're dealing with that threat in addition to the 10,000 on the other side in the north and the threat to their wives and their children and mothers who were in the compound of Banu Haritha. 
So it was a very difficult time. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about these incidents in Surah Al-Ahzab, the chapter named after the Confederates themselves. And Allah Ta'ala mentions that various thoughts cross the people's minds. In the verse we, we left off on last week, we recited the words of Allah Ta'ala where He says in that chapter, إِذْ جَاءُوكُمْ مِنْ فَوْقِكُمْ وَمِنْ أَسْفَلَ مِنْكُمْ وَإِذْ زَاغَتِ الْأَبْصَارُ وَبَلَغَتِ الْقُلُوبُ الْحَنَاجِرَ وَتَظُنُّونَ بِاللَّهِ الظُّنُونَ Allah Ta'ala says, remember when they came out at you from above you, and above here means to the north of Medina, yani from folk and from the asfal, from below you, from the south. That's referring to Banu Quraidha. When your eyes grew wild in fear and your hearts jumped into your throats, and you entertained some thoughts about Allah Ta'ala. If we translate that literally, You think, you thought thoughts about Allah. That's what it means. And it doesn't explain what those thoughts are. Then and there, the believers were put to the test and were shaken. Like an earthquake, shaken. Zilzalan shadidan, very fiercely, very strongly. Now, Imam al Razi, rahimahullah, in his Miftahul Ghaib, he talks about the meaning of this verse and he notes that in this ayah, Allah Ta'ala does not say, وَتَظُنُّونَ بِاللَّهِ الظَّنِّ or ظَنًّا. He doesn't say, and you thought a single thought about Allah Ta'ala. He says the plural, ظُنُونًا That's the plural. So he says what this means is that there were different thoughts among the people when that news came out that Banu Quraidha broke the treaty. When that news reached the community, it resulted in people having different kinds of thoughts. Now according to Imam al-Razi and others, those thoughts are divided into two categories. The thoughts of the believers and the thoughts of the hypocrites, the munafiqun. So he says, those believers, when this news arrived, their dhun was what? هَذَا مَا وَعَدَنَ اللَّهُ وَرَسُولُهُ وَصَدَقَ اللَّهُ وَرَسُولُهُ Their thoughts were consistent with what's in the verse when they said, this is what Allah and His Messenger have promised us. And Allah and His Messenger are, are truthful. So when this news came to them, it's not dhan in the sense, you know, because dhan can mean con conjecture, you know, can mean a true guess. But sometimes because the word dhan is from the, the adobat, it's a, we call those, there's a word for them, contronyms in English, contronyms. A contronym is a word that has one meaning. And it can also have its opposite meaning, right? So from lid, right? So contronyms. Dhan yahtamilu al-wajhain. So dhan can mean conjecture or guesswork. It can also mean conviction, right? And you see that in the Quran, in, in multiple verses where the word dhan 
is used with the meaning of yaqeen, certainty. So for them, their dhan is not based on conjecture. It's true yaqeen expressed in their statements. This is what Allah and His Messenger have promised us. The news comes to them and yes, there is fear because there's, that's a natural human impulse. There are, there's worries. There is uh, nervousness about facing people in battle. But they don't have the dhan of the munafiqeen. They don't have the thoughts of the hypocrites. So for them, Imam al-Razi says, the dhunun, for the believers, this is the belief that this is what Allah has promised us. And as for the munafiqun, the hypocrites, their dhun is exemplified in some of the verses that are revealed where they say that uh, Allah and His Messenger have promised us nothing but delusion, ghurur. So this is some of the vunun that start to manifest. So we're at this stage in the battle where the munafiqun begin to expose themselves. And the Quranic account exposes the munafiqun and the seerah accounts also mention the narrations where they expose themselves. We have the narration where one munafiq by the name of Mu'attib ibn Qushayr said, Muhammad has promised us the treasures of Kisra and Qaisar. Remember that promise was actually not too long before the battle because when he was breaking the rocks, he mentions this vision. He says, Muhammad has promised us the treasures of the Kisra and the Qaisar, you know, the, the Persian emperor and the Byzantine emperor. Yet here we are today, we are too afraid to even go to the toilet. We can't even venture out to go to the toilet. That's how afraid we are because of us being enveloped by these thousands of enemy troops. This is what they say. This was Mu'atab ibn Qushayr. Now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, records another statement of Mu'atab ibn Qushayr that I just alluded to. Mu'atab ibn Qushayr says, okay, the Persian emperor, he promises us the treasures of the Persian emperors and the Byzantine emperor, yet here we are too afraid to even go relieve ourselves. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala records in Surah Ahzab another statement of Mu'atab ibn Qushayr. Allah ta'ala says, وَإِذْ يَقُولُ الْمُنَافِقُونَ وَالَّذِينَ فِي قُلُوبِهِمْ مَرَضٌ مَا وَعَدَنَ اللَّهُ وَرَسُولُهُ إِلَّا غُرُورًا Exactly what we said. When those, when those hypocrites and those who had a disease in their hearts. They had iman, but there was a disease. And they lent an ear to those munafiqun. وَفِيكُمْ سَمَّعُونَ لَهُمْ They lent an ear to them. They said the same thing. That Allah and His Messenger have not promised us except غُرُور. Uh, uh, this is not panning out the way that we were told it would. They had this idea that, yeah, you become a Muslim, you make hijrah, and it's just going to be fath after fath and victory after victory, and everything is just one karama after the next, and it'll be, there'll be no challenges, right? And now the challenges come, and they're thinking, oh, what do we get ourselves into, right? Now, Aus, there's another individual, Aus ibn Qayli, who's of Banu Haritha, where the fort is located, where the women and children are. He and some other men. They go to the Prophet ﷺ after this news comes out of Banu Quraydah breaking the treaty. And they said, Ya Rasulullah, 
our homes are exposed to the enemy. Now, this is also mentioned in the Quran because what's the word for uh, one's nakedness? Aura, right? So, you know, exposure. So they say our, our homes are exposed to the enemy. We're not able to defend our homes. So give us permission to go leave so we can head home because they're right outside of Medina. And we are afraid that those homes of ours are going to get pillaged if we don't go there. This is just a pretext. It's a pretext. If the heat of the battle is here and they're saying, well, we need to go over there to protect our homes, it's an easy way out from the battle. So that's what they're doing. They're seeking idhan. Now, whenever they ask for permission, this is one of the interesting things of the seerah, is that the Prophet ﷺ always gave them idhan. Go ahead. Each time. Each time. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed about these people too. He says, وَإِذْ قَالَتْ طَائِفَةٌ مِّنْهُمْ يَا أَهْلَ يَثْرِبَ لَا مُقَامَ لَكُمْ فَارْجِعُوا وَيَسْتَأْذِنُ فَرِيقٌ مِّنْهُمُ النَّبِيَّ يَقُولُونَ إِنَّ بُيُوتَنَا عَوْرَةٌ وَمَا هِيَ بِعَوْرَةٌ إِنْ يُرِيدُونَ إِلَّا فِرَارًا And remember, when a group of them said, O oh, people of Yathrib, they don't even refer to Medina in its proper name. They just say Yathrib. O oh, people of Yathrib, there is no point in you staying here, so retreat. So another group of them then asked the Prophet's permission to leave, saying our homes are exposed, they're vulnerable. While in fact they were not vulnerable, they were not really exposed. In yuriduna illa firara, they only wanted to flee. So they use that as a pretext. You know, it's... And, you, and people have funny ways of coming up with pretexts to get out of things, right? You give the child some chores. Oh, I have a stomach ache. You, you, you're in the high school gym class having to run the laps. Oh, I have a leg cramp. I can't run the laps. I need to sit out for this one. You don't have a leg cramp. You're just being lazy. You don't want to run. Your stomach is fine. You just don't want to do the dishes. You want to make some excuse. Human beings look for all these pretexts to get out of things they don't want to do. So they say, hey, our homes are exposed. We have to defend them. Isn't it our duty to protect our homes? Can we go, please? And he gives them permission. So these are some of the responses of the munafiqun when that news comes out that Banu Qurayla has broken the treaty. Now remember, as we said before, this is occurring in the winter time, which means that food is growing scarcer by the day. And it's cold. Okay, you know, if you're living here and you go to Medina in the winter, it doesn't feel cold. Because you live here, you're used to it. But if you live there and you live in a place where there is no heating, central heating, you live in that environment, it's going to feel cold to you. You know, if a person grew up on the East Coast, they're used to a certain temperature in the winter. If they go to California in the winter, their first winter feels kind of mild. If they live in California year after year, they even they get acclimatized to that. They get used to that feeling, and they start wearing winter jackets in California because their body now adjusts to that. So it's cold for them. It's winter time. Food supplies have dwindled. They're tired. They're doing patrols all night. They're hungry. They're exhausted, and you know they're pulling guard duty by night and in skirmishes during the day. Their families are in a compound. They don't know what's going on. 
They're surrounded from the north, and now they get news that there's the forces of Banu Quraydah potentially coming from the south. Mata Nasrullah, right? That's the question. When is the Nasr of Allah going to come? How are we going to get out of this situation? That they are surrounded. But as they say, the light of the dawn comes after the darkest part of the night. When you have the darkest part of the night, that is when the white thread appears, when the light dawns. In the Ma'al-Usri, Yusra, you know, with, with difficulty, there comes ease. So when the news spread, the Prophet makes a decision to split the Muslim forces into two. Not all of them, but he divided two forces. He appointed Salama ibn Aslam with 200 men and Zayd ibn al-Harith with 300 men. And they had the job of patrolling Medina in two different groups, going all around, uttering the takbirat at night. And this was done for the sake of putting Banu Quraydha on notice. So they had a lot of people uttering the takbirat so that they would hear if they're coming from a distance to know if you've broken the treaty and you plan to come from the south, we're prepared to face you as well. Right before that, it's smaller groups patrolling the trench, doing the takbirat at night to let Quraysh and Ghatfan and others know we're here. Now it's larger groups doing the patrols, also uttering takbirat to put Banu Quraydha on notice. So this is where we are at. It's also mentioned that when that happened, when the treaty was broken, even the people in the forts were taking turns sleeping because they're not sure is someone going to come, a group going to come and uh, attack their fort. So they're, they're now even in the fort, the women and children are sleeping in turns. This is where we are. Up until now, there's no sustained fighting. right? You, we know about Badr and Uhud. We've heard about the sustained fighting in those battles. But where is that in Khandaq? This is 20 days in, and it's just small skirmishes, not any substantial fighting at all. But now, after they break the treaty, we get to some fighting. So the Muslims are how many? How many fighting Muslims? 3, right. We could say between two to 3,000. Let's just say 3,000. 3,000 Muslims uh, in the army as the fighting force. And the Ahzab are how many? 10,000. How many would Banu Quraydah be? 2,500 maybe? Right, it's hard to estimate, but around uh, probably around 2,000 fighting age males. Uh, well, we could actually get a more accurate number if we go to the actual incident of Banu Quraydah that comes later, but let's say 1,000 maybe. So we're 20 days in, and you would think that if there's 10,000 on the north and there's 3,000 Muslims, that there would be major fighting. There would be like a major bloodbath. Just, it's just so many people. But subhanAllah, in the battle of the Ahzab, it was only about, I think it was six to seven of the Sahaba who were killed in battle, and about estimates go between three to eight of the Mushrikun. After all is said and done, three to eight of the Mushrikun are killed in battle, and six or seven of the Sahaba are killed. It's very strange. Because you have Badr, which is significantly smaller, and there's more people getting killed on both sides. And you have this large battle. It's only six or seven people. What's going on here? And that's because it was a set of skirmishes 
and trading arrows back and forth. And that was going on for these 20 days until a group of the Forsan, the riders, the cavalry of Quraysh found an area around the trench that was narrow enough for them to get to the other side. In between these skirmishes and maneuvering, they're looking for a position. Finally, they found one when there was just enough of them and the Muslims positioned here and there where they had an opening that was narrow enough to allow them to get across to the other side. Now we have the first time when Quraysh are getting across the trench into the other side. And these individuals who crossed were Amr ibn Abdidwud, Ikrima ibn Abi Jahl, Ubayra ibn Abi Wahab, Nufayl ibn Abdullah, and Dirar ibn al-Khattab. These are the individuals who managed to cross, but you'll, you'll soon learn that they crossed back very quickly. So we come now to the very famous story in the Battle of the Khandaq, which relates to Amr ibn Abdi Wood. Amr ibn Abdi Wood was something of an anomaly, I suppose, because he was actually quite old. Uh, I think the estimates put him at like seven in his 70s. But he had what we would call old man strength. You know, those people who they work on construction sites and they work with their hands all through their life and they're wiry and strong and they don't waste their energy with too many movements. If they were to fight someone, they just use all their strength in one blow. And with time, experience, and toughness, they have that old man strength. That's Amr ibn Abdiwud. He had that old man strength. He was also very skilled in swordsmanship. He had a lot of experience. Think about it. This is a person who was very well trained, who was very strong, and very experienced in the ways of the sword. So you can't think that, oh, just because he's an older man, that he can be trifled with. He's a very uh, worthy opponent in battle. So he was an elder, and he was known for his bravery and ferocity. And on the day he was killed, he was wearing a red turban. Who else wore a red turban in the seerah? Abu Dujana. Abu Dujana radiallahu anhu also wore a red turban or headband. And this was a sign of being prepared to fight to the death. It wasn't exclusively for Muslims, as you see with Amr wearing it as well. Now, Ibn Ishaq relates that Amr ibn Abdi Wood had fought at Badr and got injured at Badr. And those injuries prevented him from going and fighting at Uhud. So at the Battle of Khandaq, he went forth in order to make a mark and distinguish himself as a seasoned warrior to take advantage of the opportunity that he didn't have at Uhud. So when he and those men got across, he came across and shouted, challenging the Muslims who would come forth for Mubaraza, for a duel, one-to-one -one combat. And the seerah of Ibn Ishaq narrates that he was covered in armor from head to toe, and he's shouting, who will come and fight me? And it is none other than Sayyiduna Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu anhu wa karramallahu wajha. He says, I accept the challenge. And he tells the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Ya Rasulullah, I accept this challenge to fight him. 
Now here the Prophet ﷺ, he knows Amr ibn Abdi Wood's reputation and he tells Imam Ali, that is Amr ibn Abdi Wood. Take a seat. Sit this one out. And he's saying that to Imam Ali. He says, take this one out. Seat, seat this one out. So Amr then calls out again. And he says, is there anybody from you who will fight me? And no, <laughs> no one's answering this yet. And then he starts to make fun of the Muslims. He starts to say, where is this Jannah of yours that you're talking about that you claim anyone who was killed will be in it? Can you not send even a single man to fight me? So he's making fun of them. You claim to believe in Jannah, yet you won't send a single person to fight me? And he's an older man? He's taunting them. Ali radiallahu anhu stands up again and he volunteers. And the Prophet ﷺ tells him again, be seated, sit this one out. And then Amr keeps putting this challenge. He says it a third time. And then he starts reciting insulting poetry. And then Ali anhu gets up again and says, Ya Rasulullah, I will do it. And then the Prophet ﷺ says, but that is Amr ibn Abdi Wood. He has this reputation. Ali says, I am ready to fight. I am prepared. Even though it is Amr. And with the permission of the Prophet ﷺ now granted, Imam Ali puts himself into the fray and goes to battle against Amr ibn Abdi Wood. So Ali has a conversation with Amr. They go into this back and forth. Uh, and this narration is found in the uh, Sunan of Dalal al of Imam al Bayhaqi. He mentions in this narration that Ali said to Amr, Ya Amr, Remember, you used to say, you used to swear that no person of Quraysh would invite you to one of two alternatives except that you would choose one. Amr said, yes. So here Imam Ali is from Quraysh and he says, therefore I am giving you an alternative to this. That alternative is that you embrace Islam, that you become Muslim and you Believe in Allah and His Messenger, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Amr said, "I have no need of that. I don't need it." And then Ali says, "In that case, I challenge you to one-to-one -one combat, you and me." Amr doesn't know who he is just yet, because you know people wearing armor. You know you, they recognize who he is from his voice and what they can make of his features, but this is young, young Imam Ali. He's not really aware of who this person is issuing the challenge. He says, who are you? He says, I am Ali. He says, Ali ibn Abdi Manaf. He says, I am Ali ibn Abi Talib. Now Amr says, dear nephew, you know, they have relations. Dear nephew, don't you have any uncles who are older than you who can take your place and fight me? He doesn't want to fight him. I don't want to spill your blood. Can you find anyone else from your uncles who will stand in your place and fight instead of you? Because I don't want to spill your blood. But Imam Ali looks at him and says, but I want to spill your blood. I want to spill your blood. Now when he said that, that got him angry. Which is natural, I suppose. If someone says that to you, it should trigger a response. So Amr says to him that, okay, let's do this. We're going to fight. Now, 
in the narration of uh, Al-Bayhaqi, it mentions that Amr was talking to him this whole time, sitting on top of his horse. So he crossed to the other side, he's still on the horse. When the challenge was accepted and he's ready to get into the fight, Amr gets down the horse and he hamstrings it. You know what hamstringing a horse is? In the ancient times, because battles were fought with horses, in ancient times, you would hamstring the horses of your enemies. Because if you look at the horse from the hind legs, if you strike slightly, slightly below uh, the, the, the buttocks and the, the tail area, you have the hamstrings, kind of like where you have them here. If you cut the hamstrings of the horse, the horse can't gallop anymore. Right? And those tendons don't heal. So even after the cuts heal externally, the tendon remains compromised forever. After you hamstring a horse, it can no longer be used for battle. It can only be used for farming and things like that. It can just walk. It won't be able to run ever again. Right? So he hamstrings his own horse. That is the cavalry equivalent of burning your own ship when you sail into enemy territory. I mean, he's, he has now committed himself to this fight. There's no way he can get back up and gallop off and retreat if things don't go in his favor. So he has committed himself to fighting uh, Sayyidina Ali radiallahu anhu. So he gets off the horse, he hamstrings it, and he didn't rest with that. He also smacks the horse in the face. Like They're very brutal people. And then he goes to Ali and he's ready to fight. Ali radiallahu anhu has a leather shield. They would take leather and layer it and stitch it. And obviously with leather shields, they're not made of metal. So if, if the blow is strong enough, it, it will protect against most ordinary kind of blows, swiping blows. But if it's strong enough, that blow will cut straight through the leather shield. So it's not, you know, if you have bulletproof vest, you know, if you have protective plates, you have different classes, right? For, you know, those that protect 9mm up to 45, those that protect, you know, up to 5.56, five, small arms, uh, and then, you know, but they won't protect against, say, 7.62, like there's layers for armor. So he's got this leather shield. It's like a small piece of protection, really. It's not, not that good compared to uh, a proper metal shield. So they're in this battle. It's a one-to-one -one duel. Uh, man to man. Amr is in this fight and with his skills he strikes, the, strikes at Imam Ali, it hits the shield and it cuts right through the shield. Right through it. And this actually ends up hitting the head of Imam Ali because the force of the cut causes it to go back. He injures his own head from the, the shield. But Imam Ali is very quick. For San al-Arab, he's very quick. And he strikes back and hits an artery of the shoulder of Amr so forcefully that Amr fell straight to the ground. Now, okay, you have to picture the scene. They're moving rapidly back and forth, positioning themselves. Uh, Amr bin Abdi Wood uh, hamstrung the horse and struck it in the face. It's freaking out and jumping up and down and it's causing a dust storm, right? It's causing all this dust to rise. So people who are witnessing it, it's very obscure to them. They don't really see all of what's going on in great detail. They just see these figures moving around, this dust rising, and there's a tussle. 
He strikes Amr on the shoulder, cutting this artery, causing him to, fa to fall down. Dust begins to fly, and then Imam Ali manages to finish him off with a single blow, killing him there on the spot. He won, obviously. After this, Imam Ali, he leaves that scene and goes to the Prophet His face is beaming with happiness. Farah wa surur. He was victorious. Ibn Ashaq, in his seerah, he narrates that the dust of the horse, the, the, the horse moved so much that dust was raising up, covering and obscuring what happened. And the news of Imam Ali's victory over Amr only came when he uttered the takbir. They couldn't see clearly from the distance who was winning and who was losing and who was the victorious until Imam Ali shouted the takbir, Allahu Akbar, and they knew he finished him. Imam Ali survived and Amr was defeated. Umar bin Khattab radiallahu anhu, when he finds out that Imam Ali was victorious, he asks him a question. He says, why didn't you take the, the armor of Amr ibn Abdi Wood? He has armor on. Remember we talked about Badr and how the armor they captured is the ghanima because it's very costly. He says, well, why didn't you take the armor? It's so valuable, you know. And Imam Ali radiallahu anhu said, I broke it and his aura became exposed. So I became very shy of stripping him of his armor, of his armor which would leave Amr's nakedness exposed. There's this futua, you know, even though you killed this enemy, you're not going to humiliate him after his death by stripping him of his armor in such a way that it's just going to expose all of his nakedness. So he, he left it as it was. So when Amr was struck down like this, remember, it wasn't just him, there were five others. When they saw this, they said, let's get back to the other side. And they beat a retreat back to the other side with their forces. So this narration I'm presenting to you is recorded by Imam al-Bayhaqi in Dara'il al-Nabuwa. Ibn Kathir also cites it in Al-Bidayah wa Nihayah. That incident, the duel between Sayyidina Ali and Amr ibn Abdi Wood, caused the rest of them to retreat back to the other side. But not for long. Uh, others were trying to cross again, looking for any opportunity. And in the seerah we learn of another individual who tries to cross and get to the other side. This one is Abdullah ibn Mughira al-Makhzumi. So what did he do to get across? It was just him. You know, you see the movies, because most of us aren't equestrians, because keeping horses is very costly. Uh, you see in the movies, what, what, do, what do they have to do if they want the horse to really take off? They, they smack it. So he's on his horse. He's near what he thinks is a narrower part of the trench. And he estimates that if he strikes the horse, his horse at just the right time and place, it will take off and jump across, getting him to the other side. So he's calculating the width and he's at a certain place. So he smacks the horse thinking he's going to take off here, will jump and I'll get to the other side. So Abdullah ibn Mughira al-Makhzumi, he smacks the horse. The horse takes off, the horse jumps, but they fall into the trench. They fall into the bottom of the trench, which we said is about 20 feet. They fall inside, and this caused him to be killed, according to one narration. Because the seerah, some of these details are disputed. 
One narration says that he jumped, tried to jump, he fell in, and the horse collapses on him, he falls, and he dies as a result of this fall. Another narration, and Allah Ta'ala knows best which one is the soundest, they're just, they exist in the riwayat. Uh, one narration says that he didn't actually die in the trench. He fell, yes, but as he's in the trench, he can't really get out so easily. As he's there trying to get out, Imam Ali slides into the trench, goes down to the trench with him and finishes him off and then gets back out. That's one narration. I like that narration better than the first one, to be honest. It just sounds nicer. So that is the second individual of, of the Quraysh. We also have Nawfal ibn Abdullah. Nawfal was on the Qurayshi side. He gets into a duel as well with Zubair ibn Awam. Zubair ibn Awam literally, the Sirah accounts say, he literally splits him in half with such force of the sword stroke. But like the story of Abdullah ibn Mughira al-Maghzumi, there's also a bit of, there's some conflicting narrations. So one narration says it was a duel between, Zubair, uh, between him and Zubair ibn Awam. Another narration says that he too fell into the trench and that he was stoned. People threw stones upon him. And one narration seems to indicate that it was Zubair who descended into the trench that he fell into and also finished him off in a duel. Maybe you can reconcile those narrations by saying that when he fell, some people were throwing stones. And then Zubayr managed to get down into the trench and have a duel with him and finish him off. It's possible. And Allah Ta'ala knows best. So what's really so shocking about all of this is that these are 10,000 people, massive numbers. And only, we say, three to eight of the mushrikun are killed and six to seven of the Muslims are killed in the entire incident. So of the mushriks we have Amr ibn Abdiwud, Nawfal ibn Abdullah, Abdullah ibn Mughira al-Maghzumi, these are the three most prominent ones. And we just told their stories. From the Muslims, we have Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh, who is not killed immediately, but he is wounded and ultimately dies from those wounds soon after. Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh. We have Anas ibn Aws. We have Abdullah ibn Sahl. We have Tufayl ibn Nu'man. Tha'laba ibn Ghamama and Ka'ab ibn Zayd. These are the Muslims that were killed in this incident of Ghazwatul Ahzab. So we're going to talk about Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh because his story is really important to this incident and to what comes after. So remember that Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh anhu was one of the earliest converts to Islam in Medina. Who gave him da'wah? Mus'ab ibn Umayr radiallahu anhu. Sayyidina Mus'ab was sent to Medina and he was giving da'wah to the people. And it was Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh who was among the earliest of the Muslims, of the earliest of Medi people of Medina to convert to Islam. And when he converted to Islam because of his prominence within his tribe, his entire clan converted to Islam. And he was the chief of the Aus and was a person held in great esteem and respect by his people. In connection with the Ahzab, it is mentioned by Sayyidina Aisha in a hadith that Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh went to the fortress where the Muslim children and women were, uh, were held 
where they were staying for protection. He goes there to visit his mother in order to bid her farewell because he was preparing himself to go into the thick of battle and he did not expect to survive it. He, was, he saw this as his final end. And so he goes to visit his mother at the fortress and bid her farewell before going into the front lines. His mother, think about the mothers, you know. Imagine a mother who loves her son so much and the son is bidding her, her farewell. How most mothers would react to that? They would cry. Maybe they would find some way to say, can't you avoid this? Maybe don't do that. But this is not an ordinary woman either. This is a person whose heart is filled with iman and yaqeen and believes in the promise of Allah and his messenger wasallam. So when he bids her farewell, the response of his mother was the following. Ya bunay, dear son, hurry and get to the front line. Don't waste any time. She didn't hold him back. She's telling him, go. Now Sa'ad bin Mu'adh is getting ready to go to the front line. What is he wearing? The hadith mentions that he was wearing just a simple breastplate for armor. And if you're familiar with armor, the breastplate would protect against uh, immediate slashes or stabbing, stabbings coming into this vital area, you know, most of the vital organs. But you have other sensitive areas from the sides and from below, from the different quadrants. So it's not exactly the best armor to go into battle where 10,000 soldiers are on the other side. If you really want to be prepared, you want to have armor covering yourself head to toe. He only has a breastplate, and it's not covering his sensitive areas. It's just a simple breastplate, which means that his arms are completely exposed, his neck is exposed, sides are exposed. This is important to the story. So he goes to the front lines, and he's engaged in combat with individuals from Quraysh and from the Ahzab, and as he's fighting them, he gets struck by an arrow. Now this arrow, it is said it struck his right arm near his neck. So if you look at, this is my right arm. If this is the right arm and this is the neck, that area, you call that the clavicle, right? All right, so the clavicle is a very sensitive area. He gets struck in the clavicle. And the one who fired the arrow, his name was Hibban ibn al-Ariqah. Hibban, the son of Al-Aliqah. And this is not an actual name, it's a nickname, right? Al-Aliqah. So his name is Hibban ibn Qais. But he's called Hibban, the son of Al-Aliqah. Because Al-Aliqah was his mother's nickname. Because it is said that she was, when she would perspire, natural perspiration, uh, it would have a naturally sweet scent. So her, her perspiration smelt sweet. So she was called the fragrant one, Al-Aliqah. The one whose perspiration is fragrant, Al-Aliqah. So Hibban ibn Qais, or Hibban ibn Al-Aliqah, he fires the arrow which strikes Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh here. And Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh shouts at him saying, He uses the name you know, as a play on words. And says, may Allah cause your face to perspire in hell. Using the word araq, you know, araq Allahu wajhaka finnar. 
So this is what he says to him. Now we're going to come back to his story of martyrdom because there's a whole, it takes time. He doesn't die immediately. There's a whole process and it involves Banu Quraidah, as we'll see uh, most likely next week. But we want to mention here something very important to the rest of the story that comes later on. As he is wounded, he makes a dua. Sa'ad bin Mu'ad radiallahu anhu makes the dua saying, Oh Allah, if you will allow the Quraysh to come back and fight again after today, then allow me to live and fight them. Because there is no community more despised to me than them for what they have done to your messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. But he continues in the dua. But if this will be the last time, the last battle with them, then accept me as a martyr. Accept me as a martyr. But allow my eyes to be comforted by seeing what happens to Banu Quraidah. Allah answered his dua. And he, his eyes were comforted by seeing what happened to Banu Quraidah, who betrayed the Prophet, who broke the treaty, and who conspired. Allah answered that dua. Now, how that dua was answered and plays, plays out, we're going to be speaking about from now into next week. A couple of incidents happened uh, before we get to that. We have a very uh, major incident that happened. And the fact that it's seen as major tells you a lot about where we are today. And in the chronicle of the Battle of Ahzab, when they list the events in chronological order, one of the major events that happened was that many of the Sahaba and the Prophet missed Salatul Asr. If a person today was to just miss Salatul Asr, it wouldn't be seen as a big deal. For many, sadly. But the fact that it was missed in the heat of battle, which is ma'dur, excusable, it was still seen as a big deal. Such that it was put in the seerah. If missing the prayer was not a big deal, why would it be a significant section in the chronicling of the Battle of Ahzab? So it's mentioned that from Umar radiallahu anhu, that he came to the Prophet wasallam and said, Ya Rasulullah, I was not able to pray Asr before the sunset. They're so busy moving back and forth and skirmishes and taking up positions for defense and fighting back that Asr time is going on in the heat of battle. They can't pray it. And you know, there's even a discussion among the fuqaha about why not Salatul Khawf. It was so busy that even Salatul Khawf wasn't possible. That's what they say. So he says, I wasn't able to pray Asr. And the Prophet says, I too was unable to pray Salatul Asr. And it said that both of them had made the wudu and prayed Asr after Maghrib had entered. Imam Bukhari records in his Sahih a statement from the Prophet وسلم, who said, they made us so busy such that we were not able to pray Salatul Asr. May Allah fill their houses and graves with the fire. So this is significant. I think it's more significant for us as a lesson about praying on time. Because if praying on time was not, or missing the prayer, letting it go out of its time for any flimsy excuse was not a big deal, then why would they put that as, a, as an incident of significance in the seerah?
because it was a big deal. And he made dua against them for preventing him from praying Salat al-Asr. So, at this part of the story, because we mentioned Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh getting struck, and that dua, that dua gets answered in a very amazing way. And in what remains, we want to talk about how the alliance, the Ahzab, begins to unravel. And it unravels in such a marvelous way. Subhanal khalaq the way Allah creates scenarios and situations, how things play out from which, from which you would not expect. So the turn of the tide starts on the 20th day of the siege. On the 20th day, out of the blue comes a man who seeks an audience with the Prophet and his name is Nu'aim ibn Mas'ud from the tribe of Ghatafan. Nu'aim ibn Mas'ud. Now, most of you who've been attending will be familiar with Nu'aim ibn Mas'ud. We've encountered him before. Nu'aim ibn Mas'ud is the one who, as we say, spilled the beans about the alternate trade route that, that Quraysh had established going through the Najd to bypass the main trade route that the Muslims had basically locked down. So when he found out, he spilled the beans on that early on, leading to uh, Badr or after Badr. He was also the one who was sent by Abu Sufyan to the Muslims to talk them out of going to Badr part two. When he said, oh, you know, you shouldn't go. Look what happened last time at Uhud. That was him. He was from Ghatafan. So he goes to the Prophet from Ghatafan's area, sneaking at night between Maghrib and Isha, and he goes to the Prophet He's on the enemy side. From Ghatafan, he makes his way to the Prophet and he says, I have accepted Islam, so command me to do anything you want. Tell me to do anything you want. The Prophet The Prophet says to Nu'aym ibn Mas'ud, you're just a single person. You're just one man. But go back and do anything you can to strip them of their mutual help among the tribes. And do what you can because al-harbu khid'ah, because war is deception. And I mean, war is deception, right? It's, war is not khiana. We have to note there's a difference between deception and betraying treaties and things like that. He's saying war is deception. So do what you can to create confusion in the ranks. So what did Nu'aym bin Mas'ud do? It was a genius plan. SubhanAllah, it's genius. Nu'aym bin Mas'ud, he had three steps to his plan to unravel the strength of these tribes in, this, in these Ahzab. First thing he does, he has history with Banu Quraiba. He's got history with them. So, you know, what a coincidence. He has history. He goes to them at that night and he says, you all know who I am. We have history. We've dealt with each other in the past. So I am here for your good. And they see him as one of the people of Ghatafan on their side. They don't see him as a Muslim because he's keeping his Islam secret. He says, I'm here for your own good. This is your land. 
And the wealth here is all your wealth. This property is yours, meaning you have everything to lose if things don't turn out in your favor. You have so many things to lose. But for Quraysh, he says, they have nothing to lose if they just leave. If they leave, they don't lose anything. They've only lost three people. But if they leave, well, you have a lot to lose. So the risks are very high for you, essentially is what he's saying. He says, if they find an opportunity to attack, they will attack. But if not, they will just leave. Quraysh will just leave. And you'll be the ones to suffer the consequences. So my advice to you, here's, here's the plan. He's, I'm a nasih ameen. I'm giving you sincere advice. He says, my advice to you, refuse to fight until Quraysh give you some of their noblemen, their ashraf, as collateral. If they do that, they're not going to abandon this fight because they're not going to leave their own stuck here. So he's asking them to say, to go to Quraysh and say, you need to send us a group of your ashraf. Right? Ashraf, meaning not just your, the lower class, any the higher class noblemen of Quraysh to be here with us to guarantee that you're going to stay for this fight no matter what. Because if you just leave, then we suffer. We have to be in this together. So Banu Quraydah thought, wow, this is a great idea. Stage two. He goes to Quraysh in the morning time. And he tells Abu Sufyan, you know my status among my people. And you know who I am. I have received news. And I think because we have a friendship that I owe it to tell you, I have news that Banu Quraydah are actually regretting what they got involved in. They're having second thoughts. And they have sent a message to Muhammad saying that if we hand over some of the noblemen of Quraysh to execute, will you forgive us in our lapse of judgment? So he tells Abu Sufyan, if Banu Quraydah come to you and ask for your ashraf, then take that as a sign of treason and treachery. He's setting it up perfectly. Because obviously Banu Quraydah is going to do exactly that. They don't know what's going on. But he doesn't end there. Stage three. He's gone, so he's gone to Banu Quraydah. He's gone to Quraysh, to Abu Sufyan. Now he goes to his own, Banu Ghatafan. And he tells them the Quraysh can leave at any time. And Banu Quraydah can flip allegiances at any time. They could go back to the treaty. And they've offered 70 of us. And they've offered 70 of the Quraysh to Muhammad as an expiation, saying that they've offered, they will execute 70 of us and 70 of Quraysh. So if they come asking for 70, then don't give them anything. So within a few hours of this, Banu Quraydah sends an emissary, a messenger, to go to Quraysh. And his name was Azal ibn, Samu, uh, ibn Sam, Samuel, or Samuel, Jewish. And he goes to Abu Sufyan and says, the Quraysh, you know, they've delayed for too long. It's like 21 days in now. And you have done nothing but talk, talk, talk. So let us agree on a date. You attack from your side, and we will attack from our side, and Ghatafan will attack from their side. A three-pronged attack. And we'll finish up this matter of Muhammad. We'll finish it. But before we set the date, we ask that you give us 70 of your ashraf 
because we want to secure the fact that you're not going to turn around and go back when the battle gets going and things get tough. So Abu Sufyan, he says, hmm, let me think about this. Let me think about it. So Banu Quraida go back and they don't have any Ashraf with them. They go back empty-handed. Abu Sufyan says, hmm, let me think. Because Nu'im Mas'ud planted this idea in his mind that if they come to ask for Ashraf, it's because they want to offer them as collateral as you know, to execute them as a way of expiating their previous betrayal. So now the seeds of doubt have been sown among uh, Quraysh and soon it will be among Banu Quraydah and then among Banu Ghatafan. And this is going to be the start of the unraveling of the Ahzab. So next week we talk about how it unraveled completely, what victory looked like. We'll talk about some windstorms. And then we get to the issue of Banu Quraida as well. Bi ta'ala. Wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam.